In Romans chapter 8 it says that, that there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now that being the case, that's what the Scripture says, that is the truth, and the Holy Spirit inspired, spoken through the Apostle Paul, then why are we susceptible to walking in guilt? And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that, that the sorrow of the, which leads to death, the sorrow of the world leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. But a lot of time we walk around in the sorrow of the world because we are so convinced of our sinfulness, and that's not hard to prove. But we need to also be convinced of the, the righteousness of God and his faithfulness to his promise to save and keep those who have, have put their trust in him. And, and, and it's not just a, a decision that we made to put our trust in him, but anybody who's put their trust in him has done it at the, the direction of God himself and because he has chosen them before the foundation of the world. So we ought to be able to, to hang on to that. But this guilt thing, you know, that, that stifles us or, or drives us to prove ourselves to God is a tool of the devil. So here in... in uh, in chapter 6 of Genesis, that's, that's near the beginning of the book, God points out how he deals with people, and, and there's a demonstration of his grace even here in, in, in this early, early part of the scripture. So, we, we have this, this, we're familiar probably, you're probably familiar with this, this verse, that, that the world has gone bad, you know. Man began to multiply on the face of the land. Daughters were born, born to them, born to them. And then we have a little something here that needs some some explanation because we, it's said that a text without a context is a pretext. And so let's get the context correct here and understand what's what's being spoken of. Man began to multiply on the face of the land. That's understandable. Daughters were born to them. That's understandable. Sons were born to them as well. And then we have some, some verses that, that just drive people crazy. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now there are several ideas about what that's saying and what that's referring to. And some people say, well, that's a reference to angels coming down from heaven. And these would be bad angels. Maybe the ones that, that God has thrown, them out, thrown out of heaven because they were in, the, in rebellion with Satan. These bad angels came down and, and saw pretty women who were also a little bit loose. Apparently, I mean, they, they fall for a, a bad angel. And... Uh, and, and, and then they, they married them. Euphemism for having... Uh, well, let's just stick with the euphemism, right? <laughs> so the, the angels married these women and they, they had children. And, and that's what some people think. Well, the problem is that Jesus said, no, uh. And so if you can look at Matthew 12, 25, you don't have to turn there. I'll tell you, you, you can turn there if you want to. I saw people move it. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 12, verse 25. That's good. Mark. Mark twelve twenty five. 
I like to hear those pages. Even if you have a, 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 a digital Bible, I think it's cool if you just, just find some pages to leaf through so it sounds spiritual, you know? I know the Bible, any kind of Bible is good, but Mark chapter 12, and there's, there's this discussion going on about, uh, about the resurrection, and, and there are seven men who have had the same wife because of Leverett marriage, and, and, uh, and so the question in, in verse 23 of Mark 12 says, In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Well, that doesn't do anything for us because he's talking about men there. But it goes on to say, but are like angels in heaven. These men who do not marry, these, who, who, these women, these men who do not marry because they're in heaven, they have been raised from the dead, they don't marry because they are like angels who also do not marry. They don't marry in heaven, they don't marry in earth. Angels don't marry. So that rules out the, the idea that this, these sons of God that are spoken of here are angels. Even though in Job, he, he uses the, the term in, in the first, in first chapter when it says, and the sons of God came before the Lord, and, and later on. But, but apparently that's not the same thing here, because angels don't marry. Others say, well, these were the descend, descendants of righteous Seth. Uh, and and in, in, in one of the genealogies of Jesus, it, it traces it back, and, and Seth is in the lineage of Jesus just before Adam, and it says Adam was the son of God. Seth was the son of Adam, and Adam was the son of God. And so people say, well, they, they were sons of the righteous ones. Uh, I, I should have said they were descendants of, of, of Cain. The women would have been the descendants of Seth. But the, the bad guys must have been the descendants of Cain. They were bad, and, but, but that doesn't work either because there's just, just nothing that ties it biblically in there. You're just trying to, to make it fit. Others say, well, they were rulers because in, in uh, Psalm 82, it, Jesus, uh, the Lord uses that, that term of sons of God. It says, I have called you sons of God. But if you look at the, at the context there, it's, it's really a, a judgment from God because he's talking to, to rulers and, uh, and, and says, you know, you, I, I put you in a special position. And how long, verse 2 of, of, of uh, Psalm 82 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked and, and give justice to the, to the weak and the fatherless? Or you should give justice to the weak and the fatherless. And then down in verse 6 he says, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And so this is saying, well, maybe it, it's talking about the, the, the powerful kings or righteous judges. That, that could fit except there's just no link between that and what we have here in Genesis. But what we do have, a link that's not far off, is in, in Genesis chapter 3, no, chapter 2, I'm sorry, says, uh, Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. 
So man, God created man that makes man the son of God, just like, like the lineage of Jesus says, Adam was the son of God. So these sons of God, the best translation, the best way of looking at this, were men. Just regular, every day, go to work every day, or retire and do what you want to every day, men. Okay? So, here we have that, that what happened is men multiplied. The, the, the sons of God, the men saw the daughters of man. Now, what's daughters of man? Is that, is that those good, those good girls that came from Seth? Or were they the, the loose women who came from Cain? Well, actually, it's all women because the Bible says that God created man and out of man he took the woman. And so it's just talking about all the women that had been born, they were born, they were, they were created by God out of man. So they are out of man, right? Now, so it's just talking about how the, crea- how the, the population increased. And as with the increase of the population, there was an increase of sorriness. There was an increase of sin. Because everyone who was born was born with the sin of Adam circulating in their DNA, in their blood, in the DNA of their blood. So the daughters were just women, because women, woman was taken out of man. The men, the sons of God, were men who were creations of God and born of other men that were created of God. So there you have that. But now people say, well, then how did these just regular old men and regular old women turn out to, to make these giants? Okay, let's look at verse 4. The Nephilim. That's the ESV translation. That's the, the Hebrew translation, the Nephilim. Or giants, some of your translations may have. They were on the earth in those days, and afterward... When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, how do we explain Nephilim giants? Well, the best way to explain it is with the Bible. And the Bible, in that very verse, tells us who the Nephilim are. They were mighty men. Mighty men. They were giants in the eyes of everybody. They were heroes. Actually, a a good translation of the word Nephilim is bullies. Tyrants. I I like this one. Uh, In in the Strong's translation, it it calls them fellers. Really? With the E-R, y'all? Fellers. (laughs) But they're not talking about southern fellows. They're talking about men who make people fall down, you know, because they, they always wielded the sword and they were big bullies and they pushed people around and they, and they were just heroes of, of those days, mighty men, uh, men of renown, the way this translation says. They were mighty men who were of old men of renown, okay? So what we have here is not some special demonic kind of a time. It's just... Men and women, people being people. That's bad. That's bad. Because men and women, apart from Christ, are all bad. 
We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That has been the case ever since Adam. So we've got these regular old people doing regular old sorry people stuff. That's what we're dealing with. That's the context. Now, I, I left out something we're going to come back and talk about a little bit in, in, uh, in verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days will be 120 years. We're going to come back and talk about that. But I, I, want, to, I want to step forward here to verse 5. Because here's the problem that's presented in this text. Let's read it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may be reading the NIV or the King James. Do you have anything that says something that's far from what I just read? Do you have a version that says... But the good old boys, you know, our man was really good in his heart, but he just didn't, he was just in a bad environment. You have any of those kind of things? If you do, throw that book away. Because what the language says is that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. And it's not just talking about men. It's talking about mankind, women too. Evil. Now, here's something that stands out to me. God saw that. God saw that. Now, just as a little side note, in Matthew, Jesus said, for as it... It were in the, as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So it, that's the way it was then. And as we get closer to the coming of Jesus, it's going to be that way. And in between, it's going to be that way. That's the way it is. Every intention. You say, well, I know some good people and I'm a good person. Every intention in my heart is not. Well, if, you're, if that intention is not a, a work of, of faith in Jesus Christ, it is evil. Because what's not a faith is sin. How about that? And God reads minds and God knows thoughts. He knows what we would do if we could. As if, if we weren't restrained by law or if we weren't afraid of being caught. So, well, not me. I am pure as the driven snow. Well, what I would like to be able to do, no, I really wouldn't, but it would be interesting if we could just take your thoughts from the last 24 hours and project them up there <laughs> and let others judge to see if your thoughts are pure as the driven snow. And I would imagine that would not be the case. God knows our hearts. And when God looked at the hearts of these people in this day that we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 6, he saw that evilness. He saw that wickedness. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. I, I, we may have a little trouble with the word sorry but it's not hard. To, I think the, the, the rest of it explains it. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. 
the explanation of that is in this verse as well. It grieved him to his heart. God is grieved by the sin of man. Not surprised because God knows the end from the beginning. But because God, who is perfectly holy, cannot abide sin, His holiness was offended. His character was offended. Even though there wasn't law in this day, He hadn't given the, the, the commandments, the ten or the, all the rest of them. But man knew right and wrong, and man tended toward wrong. And when God saw it, he was grieved. And since he was grieved, and since he is holy, his holiness demanded judgment. Because God will not let sin go unpunished. And because the desire of God is his own glory... And the only ones that will glorify God are those who are righteous enough to see him as he is and glorify him. So what God is seeing as he looks at at the, the world at this time, and you know the population couldn't be all that high compared to now, but what he saw was a was a preponderance of evil. And God not only does he have to to punish sin, his desire is to to see people come to holiness. And so what is going to happen is that God is going to purge the world of the majority of sin at that time, leaving behind only eight souls. But he does it not just to make those people pay for their sin, but because God wants his world to have an opportunity to, opportunity to see him. And so, he wasn't surprised. He was resolved to mortify sin. The New Testament tells us to mortify sin in our members. And so God is more going to mortify sin in the world, which means to just kill it. He's going to kill off sin. But before he does, he's going to give those sinners an opportunity to repent. And that's what verse 3 is about. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Does that mean that, that from that point on, people were only going to live 120 years? Well, that doesn't work for Noah. Because Noah lived way over 120 years. But for 120 years, God's spirit is speaking to people about their sin and giving them opportunity to repent. And because the the scripture tells us that that Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that's in chapter 5, verse 32. And he was 600 years when the rain started. 120 years means that God began to work with people even before Noah began to build the ark. As a matter of fact, some people say, well, well, 120 years is how long Noah worked on the ark. Well, we have a little problem with that too. 
Because it talks about when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when God talked to him and he said, I want you to build an ark and I want you to take your sons and their wives with, me, with you. 120 years before he was 600 years old, he didn't have any sons or sons with wives. So how long did it take to build the ark? This is just a side. This is a little rabbit trail here. I like rabbit trails. How long did it take to build the ark? Not necessarily 120 years. Because it started after his sons were born and had, had children. So to get all his sons up to, to or had wives, to, up to having wives age, might have taken 30, 35 years, say 30 years after he, after he had his first child at 500. So that would leave not 100 years to build the ark, but only 70 years to build the ark. How is Noah going to build an ark at all? And how is he going to build an ark big enough to carry all these animals and stuff? And in 100 years, even more ridiculous is in 70 years. Well, you know, there's some things that we don't, that we don't think through here. The Bible doesn't say that Noah built the ark all by himself. He might have gone down to... To the, to the corner and picked him up some labor, said, help me build an ark. You don't have to be righteous to build an ark, as God commands it, right? Or God could have just, you know, put Noah in high gear and had him building arks and preaching quickly so that he could get it done in 30 days if he wanted to. Because God can do that kind of stuff. And here's the bottom line. Doesn't make a bit of difference. They built the ark, a real ark, that would carry real animals, that would float on the water, that didn't have a rudder, that God directed, and God made it float, God sealed it, God put Noah inside of it, God brought Noah out of it, and he preserved life on earth. And how did that happen, that, that Noah got involved in all this? Well, here's the good news of this section. <laughs> Verse 8, chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You got that? Does, does, does any of your scripture have something different? Some of them may find, say that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Does any of your, do any of your translations say that Noah earned the favor of the Lord? Some of y'all aren't even looking. Oh, you just know that. Noah did not earn the favor of the Lord. And the word there, that he found favor of the Lord, that's, that's actually a, a word picture in, in Hebrew, and I think it, it applies over in the New Testament as we're talking about grace, although grace is more the idea of gift. It's the idea of not just the gift, not just something that's unmerited, but how the gift is presented. The, the powerful one stoops down to present this gift. That's the picture here, is that God stooped down to Noah and gave him his favor, gave him his grace, which he did not earn. And here's, here's something else. Not only was God gracious to Noah, but God was gracious to me because God didn't destroy the whole earth. God didn't let wickedness run rampant. Instead, God found one that he counted as righteous and he saved that one 
so that that righteous message of the grace of God would come down eventually to me. Sometimes we think that Old Testament stuff is just a bunch of stories that we learned when we were little kids in, in Sunday school. But y'all, it's effective today. The righteousness, the goodness, the grace that God showed Noah came down to you and me because all men can track their lineage back to Noah. Adrian Rogers used to say, he said somebody came to him one time who was big into uh, genealogies. And they said, I have found out that my, my lineage goes back to the Mayflower. You know, they came, my, my kinfolk came over on the Mayflower to America. I, that, I'm really something. Others say, well, mine goes back to George Washington. Adrian Rogers said, I found that my lineage goes back to a, to a crooked farmer and a drunken sailor. The farmer was Adam. The sailor was Noah, who we're going to find out eventually gets drunk. That's pretty far back, and that's about, and that is how we got where we are. So, Noah found favor in, in the eyes of God. He didn't earn it. Noah is the vessel that God is going to use to bring our, our grace to us. Uh, matter of fact, in, in 2 Peter 2, 5, it calls him a, a preacher of righteousness. So apparently while he's building the ark and, and before he built the ark, whatever opportunity he had after God's call on his life, he preached to people repentance. And eventually, the Holy Spirit used it to preach that truth to my heart. And so through Noah's body, God brought grace to mankind. We know it's all a work of God through his Holy Spirit. And God's grace is available today to those who need God's favor. And that's all because of what God did through Noah. Okay. So now, what, other than that, what significance is this? Well, here's something I see very significant. Is that of all the population of all the world... there were some people that could find God's grace. When the world was so wicked that God said, I will destroy it just to, to purify it, he didn't destroy everybody. There were people, eight people, who found God's grace. You can find God's grace. God's grace is available to you if you desire it. How do we do that? How do we find God's grace? And, and, and certainly, it, we, you may not have any trouble identifying with those that God destroyed. You may have more trouble identifying with righteous Noah, the righteous preacher. But, but the way that we find the grace of God is by changing our thoughts. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So we need to do some work in our hearts. And when it's, and it doesn't say as, as your heart beats, but as you think. So he's talking about the center of who you are. We need to learn to adjust our thoughts and center our thoughts on righteousness. 
Because as we think, we are. That's some of the problem with the internet, y'all. Some of the problem with media, whether it's print media or whatever, it's just, that's a problem with our mind. Sometimes our thoughts go to places that are not godly. We need to work on our thoughts. We need to direct our thoughts to God. We need to seek the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So we need to, we need to have that mind of Christ. In, in Hebrews 3.1, it says to fix your thoughts on Jesus. On, in Colossians 3, it says set your mind on things above. Actually, it says set your heart in some of the translations, but it's, it's the idea is to set your mind, your thoughts on things above where Jesus is seated. So we need to adjust our thoughts. We need to do that intentionally. If we just let things roll as they come... If, if we just look at whatever comes before our eyes, if we just listen to whatever passes by our ears, then we will be drawn away from God. We need to intentionally set our thoughts on God. Well, well what would be good? Well, there, there's a book that's, that's pretty good called the Bible. And so I would encourage you to, to take some time to apply yourself to the Bible. You say, well, you may be like me. You read for a little, little while, and, and, uh, and, and that's a sure cure for insomnia. Those, those little, little marks on the page and my eyes following them, it's very hypnotic. And... So, I'll tell you how I think that started. When, when I was a little kid, at nap time, my mama used to read us Bible stories. And so now when I see a Bible story, I'd say, oh, it's time to take a nap. No. <laughs> Not if I'm intentional about it, though. If I sit down to study the scripture, it's always fun. You know, sometimes when when I'm when I'm preparing sermons, if if I'm going through a, a book, what comes next is easy. But if I'm kind of trying to decide, well, what what Lord do I talk about? And and it takes a long time to come around to to what what to look at. But when I get to looking at it, it's fun. You know, uh, I don't I don't know if it'll be that kind of fun to you. But it, it can keep you awake, is what I'm saying. And so we need to use the Bible. And if you can't read, then have it read to you. You can get online and find the Bible that, that's read to you. You can buy Bible tapes. You can, you can just have all kinds of ways of having the Word of God flowing through your mind to adjust your thoughts. Because we need to work in our minds. We need to seek the mind of Christ. We need to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We need to have this mind, our mind set on things above. Another thing that we need to do is we need to admit our impurity. You know, that we're not just, we're not just looking to the, the Word of God uh, as a recreation, but we are looking to the Word of God because we need the Word of God. In Colossians chapter 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. We need to admit our guilt. We need to get honest with God. We need to admit our impurity. We need to guard ourselves against immorality, sexual immorality, evil passions, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. See, we have some stuff to work with. We need to guard ourselves against that. We need to take a, a review every once in a while and, and, and go back in our, in our minds in our day and say, well, have I focused on sexual immorality or impurity or impure passions or evil desires? Have I been unrighteously angry? Have I blurted out in wrath? Have I been malicious? Have I slandered? Have I been obscene? We need to admit our guilt. Take a mental inventory. Now, here's a warning. When you do that, sometimes you go through and you make your list and we confess it to God and we say, Now, God, pay up. Now I've done good. I have, I have done a mental inventory. I have I've come up with these sins that you have brought to my mind and I have confessed them and now you owe me. Give me something. You know what? You're in a hole. You're not going to get to the point where God owes you anything. He already has given you life. Now, I'm talking about people who belong to Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can confess everything you want to except Jesus, and you're still just as lost. But even as a Christian, when you do this confessing and, and you, cl- you focus your mind and you're cleaning up your, your act in your heart... You don't do it so that you are more saved and so that God will do some super blessing on you. You do it because that's what you do, because you have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is pure, and that's what we aim at. And so we confess those things. And then, when we have done that, we get rid of them because they're poison. If you find out that something you have taken into your mouth is poison, you want to spit it out. If you swallow it, you want to regurgitate. If it's in your heart, you confess it and get it out and move on because we want to have the mind of Christ. And then, when we confess that, we, we turn that guilt over to God. Okay? The enemy uses guilt to control us. And one of the ways that he does it is because we are people who, who don't want to owe anybody anything. And so when, we, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, sometimes what we do is say, well, I've got to pay for this. And God says, Jesus already paid for that. He say, well, I'm going to pay for it because I, I don't want to owe anything to anybody. And so we beat ourselves up and we, we stay away from certain things and we might even stay away from God and prayer because, because we're going to get this thing paid off. <laughs> no, you're not. It's already paid off. And so what we need to do is turn that guilt over to God and not be hopeless and not be trying to pay our way out of this debt, but we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we get back into a right relationship and we accept that relationship by the grace of God and by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Isaiah 43, it says that He has blotted out all our sin. In Micah, it says He has, he has thrown them out into the depths of the sea. 
In Psalm 103, it says he's put them as far as the east is from the west, not as far as the north is from the south, because you can go north and eventually be headed south. But if you go east, you'll never be headed west. If you go west, you'll never be headed east. God put them where you can't get to them anymore. He has forgotten them intentionally. And we need to thank Him for that and trust Him for that kind of grace that He has given us. Confess our sins and accept His. Have the faith to accept His forgiveness. That's Godly sorrow. God allows our hearts to be broken over our sin. That's godly sorrow that brings us to the point of confession and then trusting Him for His forgiveness. It brings us to repentance. And then fill your thoughts with the Lord. We've already said that. But Romans 12, 2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, you say, well, you know, you don't know what I've done. Well, you don't know what I've done either, praise God. You don't know what I'm capable of. I don't even know what I'm capable of. But I do know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for every sin of mine. And it is paid for whether I accept that payment or not because I'm in him. But it will eat on me and it will hold me back and it will, it will have me centered on myself and my sin instead of him, which is our goal, if I do not trust him for his forgiveness and his grace. His grace beats guilt if we'll let it. Because this God that we're talking about is the God who called Abraham out of Ur Chaldees. Abraham wasn't anybody, but God chose him and called him. This is the God who delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, the most powerful nation on the, on the world, but God brought his people out from slavery. He is the one who stopped the invasion of Canaan land. Remember, the Israelites are going into Canaan, and, and God's giving it to them, but he held it back because he sent some spies into Jericho, and they met a woman who just happened to be a prostitute. And she gave them information, and she hid the spies, and God held up the invasion so that he could minister to her and save Rahab, who's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Not only does God whoop people, God sometimes holds things back to give people an opportunity to save. That's the God that we serve, and that's the God that we trust for our salvation. He's the God who answered Elijah when Elijah prayed, and the rain stopped, and then he answered Elijah when he, when he prayed, and the rain started again. And in the interim there, God called Elijah called down fire from this God to consume the altar, the, the sacrifice and the altar that Elijah had set up to show the lost world that God is God. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who saves us. That's the God who loves you enough to extend grace to you, favor to you. That is the God who has forgiven you. And that is the God who wants to help you focus your mind on Him for His glory and for your good. But the only way you can do that is, first of all, take Him at His word that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only way to the Father. And that what God promised back in Genesis chapter 3, that he would crush the head of the serpent, he did in Jesus. 
And you can come to Jesus. You can come to the grace of God. You have found favor with God if you want it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, your favor that is, that is given to us and demonstrated to us. I pray for those this morning who realize their lostness, realize their sin.